Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Uh, hope you've had a great week. Um, I don't know about you, but we, I think we all love shortcuts, don't we? Uh, some of you might be the kind of person that all of us hate who drives through the corner mall or the corner gas station to get around the, 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 the traffic at, uh, at, at rush hour. But whether you do that or not, we all live life, don't we? Looking for shorter ways to get through life to where we want to be in life. And I'm not saying in this series called No Shortcuts that there are, there's never a shortcut, that they're all bad. We're not going to say that. But honestly, many are. Whether driving or repairing things or hiking or in life, how many of you taken a shortcut that you regret? That ended up not being a shortcut, it was harder, it was full of problems, it was difficult, you would or she wouldn't have done it. I don't know if any of you know this about Wendy, hopefully many of you do because you know her. Wendy's really spunky. Anybody know that about her? Yeah, my wife. Once, uh, once in a while that gets us into the trouble. So one story about that is when Wendy was about to deliver Jared, our, our youngest child, who is now in college, her parents, I mean, it was actually close enough to delivery, her parents were already there waiting for him to come. In fact, she had been in uh, pre-labor contractions for several days on and off. And she happened to wake up one morning and say, you know what, my dad is here, we need to do something fun before this baby comes, so we're going to go see this waterfall that we haven't seen before. We're living in Oregon at the time. And of course, her dad and I said, uh, you're in no condition to hike. I don't know if you noticed that. And she said, well, it's only a couple hundred yards off the, tra- off, the, off the road, so we won't have to hike much. And so our next obvious question is, well, where's the road? And her answer was, well, it's this old, old logging road up the Willamette River Valley. So after a few more uh, very hesitant comments, her spunk won, and we were off and going. I don't know uh, if you've ever been on logging roads in the Northwest. Uh, they vary greatly in condition. Much of the time, it is uh, a good off-roading adventure. And so here we are in our minivan, off-roading. That's a good picture in of itself. Our minivan with Wendy nine months pregnant, our two kids uh, in their car seats in the back, and her dad reading the logging road map. And, and can I just say, uh, all of you uh, young parents who are, or people who are pregnant who are maybe thinking about having kids or are going to have kids, when you get to that stage of pregnancy where you just want it done, you know, everybody gets that, you just want this thing to come out, right? Everyone's going to tell you lots of good ways to encourage labor. They'll say things like walking or one that has always told me is you can go ride on the front of a speedboat and as it bounces and splaps the waves, it'll help you get going in labor, Right. Can I just tell you, I'm convinced from my own experience that the absolute best way to get labor moving is to go on a washboard, pothole-filled logging road. We were not more than a couple hundred yards off the main road onto this logging road when labor picked up intensely. By the time we finished the hour-long, seven-mile trip to the trailhead of the falls, the contractions were uh, over one minute long, less than three minutes apart, and really intense. So those of you who know, that's, that's like the time you go to the hospital. Her dad was visibly sweating it. It was really kind of funny. I was sweating it too, honestly. I was concerned. I kept telling her along the way we should turn around. Oh, the spunky old Wendy just kept saying, no, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to see this waterfall before I deliver this baby. And her dad kept saying, and, and, and I kept saying, and I, might I add reasonably, very reasonably, how are you going to walk the several hundred yards 
to see this waterfall with those kinds of contractions. But Miss Funky kept saying, I can do this. This is going to be fun. There isn't a single stubborn bone in that beautiful woman's body. She made it less than a 100 feet down the trail over the course of several strong contractions where I had to hold her up before she finally changed her mind and said, maybe this isn't a good idea. And we, well, her dad and I practically carried her back to the car. And as we're going back, we're sitting there out loud thinking, I wonder if there is a shortcut to get out of here and get to the hospital or at least to get back to a place where there's cell coverage. So my, my, her dad, who is a master map reading, he, his, his favorite thing in life was maps. He figured out that technically it would be faster to go over the top of the mountain and down the other side than it would be to go back the way we came and speculated that there might even be cell coverage at the top of the mountain, which no, 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 not, not, no, 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 no such luck. But we all agreed the shortcut was the best plan. Now, so, so, let's shorten this story because I could go on. Uh, the shortcut, it wasn't really a shortcut. It was a miracle we didn't get lost reading that logging road map and trying to rely on the van's built-in southeast, uh, northeast, northwest, you know, compass, trying to figure out where we were because there were hundreds of spur-off roads on this logging road. And you just, I mean, we were, we were nervous. I've never seen my father-in-law so nervous in his whole life. He was sitting there wondering, am I going to have to read this map, uh, deliver my daughter's baby in the back of this van with a six-year-old and three-year-old grandkids watching the whole time? We finally got to a real road. Funny thing is, Wendy's labor stopped shortly after we got back on I-5, just a few miles away from the hospital. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor in this one. In my emotional exhaustion of that whole experience, I actually suggested to her, why don't we go back and find another logging road and just get this thing done? She wasn't for that. I don't know why. We think about this. We we were talking about this. We're really grateful. It turned out like it turned out fine. It it could have been very different. I mean, just a couple years later, there was another family who did a similar shortcut on the logging roads in Oregon and got lost, got stuck, and nobody found them for five days because they didn't know where they were. We often take shortcuts in life, don't we? In pursuit of abundant life. And it honestly too often leads to trouble, leads to heartache, leads to delays in actually getting to where we want to be in life. But who doesn't like shortcuts? I mean, we avoid traffic jams because they're difficult and frustrating. And, and it, it isn't, isn't that why we take shortcuts so often in our finances and end up with a lot of debt because uh, we want to get somewhere faster rather than the harder, slower way and it leaves us burdened with debt? If you're in that position with your finances right now, Financial Peace University starts in two weeks. It's a great way to find peace in your finances. And isn't that the reason we take shortcuts in our relationships also? Because it's just easier sometimes or maybe even more pleasurable to do what we want to do in the moment even though it's the not the best long-term view thing to do. I mean, in some way, I think all of us are tempted to take shortcuts. In our series, No Shortcuts, we're going to spend time addressing how taking shortcuts in our pursuit of a great life can actually lead us to trouble and heartache. And even though we know that the best things in life, that there are no shortcuts for those, we still all too often still think, well, maybe just, just maybe we can avoid the hardness of this path if I just go this way. But shortcuts don't lead to health and they don't lead to a solid sense of well-being. 
Our core scripture for this whole passage is, is found in, in a passage of Jesus that, that we actually find in three of the Gospels. And I think that just means it's really important. It's recorded in three of the eyewitness accounts. Uh, the first part of it is found in Matthew 3. You can also same, find the same thing in Luke 3, but we're going to start in Matthew 3 today. It helps set the stage today for the main course of our discussion. Uh, and it's almost like the hors d'oeuvres, what I'm going to get into right now. You might, and these hors d'oeuvres are really good. You might just want to make a meal out of them, but, but there's more. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? So let's understand what's going on here. John has been in the wilderness calling people to repent, and to repent of their sin and to return to God and his ways for a really long time. And when people make that decision to do that, he baptizes them. So here, here comes Jesus along one day, and the Spirit of God reveals, you can look in the text, the Spirit of God reveals to, Jesus, to John who Jesus is, and so John knows he, he's sinless. John, John is thinking, I mean, uh, Jesus, you've done nothing wrong. You have nothing to repent for other than maybe possibly being too perfect, and I'm flawed, and I'm sinful. You need to baptize me, not me baptize you. So the question is, why are you, Jesus, getting baptized? That's a great question, isn't it? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. So back to that question, why did Jesus get baptized? It wasn't for him. He didn't need to repent of sin. He got baptized for you and for me and for every one of us for our sin. See, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry on this earth, He sets the focal point of His purpose that culminates in His cross and resurrection. He isn't doing this for Him. He is repenting on our behalf and saying and saving us. And the text goes on and it continues. It says, And as soon as Jesus was baptized, He went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven opened, and He saw the Spirit, John saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, This is My Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. So Jesus gets baptized and what happens? I think there's three really significant things that happen here. The first one is heaven opened. See, the Bible teaches really clearly that sin puts a barrier between us and God. Sin can prevent us from seeing God. It can prevent us from hearing Him. It can prevent us from our prayers from being answered. It can prevent, it blinds us to His, to God and His good ways. It breaches the relationship we have with God. Jesus is repenting for us and being baptized for us. And as a result, heaven opens. And the possibility of a close relationship breaks into existence for us with God because of what Jesus is doing. But it doesn't stop there. The text also shows us that God's Spirit comes on us. So it's not just that the heavens open and now we're free to try to, to, in our power, grasp it, to work really hard to see if we can jump high enough to get to God. No, God comes to us pursuing us and when we choose to follow jesus the spirit of god actually comes to live inside of us we see ezekiel prophesying that that's exactly what's going to happen to us when jesus comes centuries earlier he says and i god will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes first corinthians 3 paul says that's exactly what happened when jesus came he says do you not know that you are god's temple that God's Spirit dwells in you. 
It's a question. Why is that significant? It's significant because it changes everything. This sets Christianity apart from all other religions. All other religions say that you do good works, you grow your character, you change your outward behaviors, and you do enough good things and you can earn heaven. You can earn nirvana or whatever they call it. Christianity says no. I come to you, God says, and I start to change you on the inside. Before your behaviors have ever changed, when you accept Christ, the Spirit of God comes in and makes you new and begins to change and rewire our heart. And eventually the change in our hearts becomes something that we start to see on the outside in our actions and our thinking, our behavior. Jesus talks about that in Luke 6 when he says this. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks, his actions come. Change is from the inside out in Christianity. And no other religion can claim that. This is kind of cliche to say that phrase. I get that. But nevertheless, when we really get it, that this rich inner life with the Holy Spirit radically changes our lives, uh, it changes things. There's one more thing in, in this Jesus baptism that I want to set before we get to the main course. And it's this. God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So when we subsequently look at what Jesus does throughout his whole ministry and what that means for us, I think one of the best summaries of that is found in the book of Ephesians. And if you were to summarize the book of Ephesians, what you would see that is all three of these statements are about us now in Ephesians. That we are forgiven and we are given access to God and to heaven. We are filled with the Spirit and given gifts and purpose and calling and power to overcome in this life that is from God coming to us. We are adopted as His sons and His daughters and receiving full inheritance along with Jesus. That's what Ephesians says and that's, that's the same three things that happened in Jesus' baptism. We become sons and daughters in whom God is well pleased. So let's put that another way. These truths become something about us. That God has forgiven me when we follow Him because of Jesus of all of my sins and no one can condemn me. Jesus comes to me. He pursues me and makes me new from the inside out through the power of God's Spirit with me. God's favor is with me. And I am highly valued and loved by God and completely secure in that. And yet, when you and I are tempted... We still struggle with those statements. And we ask questions like this. We say, am I really forgiven or is God really punishing me in this? Is God really going to show up and work on my behalf? Am I really who God says I am and worth what God says I am worth? Forgiveness, I think for many of us, at least initially, is easy to believe. But transformation... The freedom to live out of those three truths that we've talked about, that takes time and struggle and defines the course of our life as followers of Jesus. See, the focus of our whole life in following Jesus is to allow the Holy Spirit to make these three truths be something that infuses, that permeates every aspect of how we think and feel and live. Believing them is one thing. 
Letting them transform us is a whole nother thing. And there aren't any shortcuts to that kind of transformation. So Paul, in writing to the Philippians, talks about this even at the end of his life. Paul is talking about his struggle to to pursue and achieve that transformation. He says, not that I have already obtained this. What's the this? The the this is that total transformation of living life in all areas, at all times, in his emotions and thoughts and behaviors permeated by these three truths infused by the power of the Holy Spirit in his life to guide every choice and action. He says, or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. What, why does he forget the past? Because he's trying to live in this truth of I am forgiven. And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ, God in Christ Jesus. There's this, there's this intensity. There's this perseverance that he's calling us to live through to achieve these realities in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let's jump back to Jesus because here's the really interesting thing that that might be really kind of difficult to swallow, but it's the reason that what I've said today so far is they're just the hors d'oeuvres. Here's the main course. Jesus has just been baptized by the Spirit and the Spirit of God falls on him. And what happens? Let's look at the Luke 4 recollection of this. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. At the end of them, he was hungry. So Jesus, the perfect man, never sinned, repents on our behalf, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and God says, you are my beloved son and I am well pleased in you. And then what does the Spirit do? It leads him to a place to be tempted. Notice it doesn't say God tempted Jesus. It doesn't say that. Rather, the Spirit led Jesus to a place, into a situation in which he would face temptation for 40 days. Now we think, no, that can't be. You become a follower of Jesus and we think it's all going to be better. God is, God is my protector. These things won't happen. Life's not going to suck. I shouldn't be tempted all the time. But there's a lesson in this for us. When we are tempted, our natural reaction is we want to take shortcuts. We want out. We want to avoid it. We want to just get rid of it, get away from it at all costs. But here it says God's Spirit led Jesus into the place of temptation for 40 days. Not just for a minute, not for a few hours, not for just a few days, 40 days. Here's, I think, the lesson for us in this. And I know it's going to sound oversimplistic, but it's really powerful. Life is a struggle. Life is difficult. And often like a battle where at times it can feel like we're barely surviving. See, I think we all know that intuitively. We fight against it, but we know it. We may not like it. We may regularly get tired of it. but, But we know this truth. But see, here's our problem that this text exposes in us. We all live life through the sound of, through the, through the lens of the sound of music, not through scripture. 
If you know The Sound of Music, you know there's this place in the movie where Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer, who are the lead characters, finally break through, finally come out in the open with this love that we've seen growing between them the whole time. And we see them singing and dancing. And in the song, they say what? Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. See, I think that's how we live. We live with this instinctive tape in life that says, if things go well, then I've done well. If things go badly, then someone is to blame it, and that someone is most often me. And if I can't bear to blame myself, then I'll blame others. And if I can't find my answers to that struggle and that, then I will blame God for my troubles and say to God, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? See, the assumption through which we naturally live is this, that normal, ordinary life is smooth and good. But if life isn't going well, then somebody screwed up. See, that thinking creates so much anxiety, anger, frustration, depression, and hurt in life. And yet coming right into that thinking is Jesus in our text today, whose goodness is perfect, and yet what was his life like? I don't think anyone has won his life. It's horrible. Everything went wrong. There was barely a day of ease anywhere in it. He was, as a young child, a refugee, and then after that, raised in a tough lower-class environment, accused of being a bastard. His dad dies early in his life, and so he faces the struggle to survive, being the oldest now responsible for the family at way too young of an age. And, and then when he enters public ministry, uh, his period of that, then he, we see persecution and betrayal and hard days and nights sleeping out in the wilderness with a rock for a pillow and people never leaving him alone, never allowing him to rest and relax, always having to be on, always pressured. And then the whole, well, you know, there's the rest and the beatings and the crucifixion things. And see, what this says to us is that script of expectation about the normal life that is in our hearts and our heads needs to be rewritten. If something goes badly, if you are tempted, tested, tried in life, if horrible things are happening all around you, it doesn't necessarily mean that you did anything wrong. The point is, no matter how you live, life is a struggle. Normal life is not easy. Normal life is not always good. You can have all sorts of problems and they may not be because you screwed up at all. Well, hey, Ross, thanks for such an encouraging message today. And yet there's freedom. There is hope in acknowledging this truth. See, the struggle of this life is going on all the time. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. But we tend to live like Job's friends who come to Job in all of his calamity and say, well, what did you do wrong? God must, you must have done something wrong or God wouldn't be allowing this to happen or God wouldn't be doing this to you. That's how we live life. And I think this is especially hard for us as Americans. I don't, I don't know if there's ever been a group of people in history who've believed more strongly that the normal life we should be able to live is one that is easy and smooth, happy and trouble-free. See, if you don't believe and settle this core point, that life is a struggle in our hearts and begin to rewrite the normal expectation script that we respond to life through, 
that actually has terrible implications for all of us that we all live in right now when we don't live according to this truth. Because if you don't come to terms with the, with the fact that life is a struggle, then you will live life with at least double the pain. If trouble and sickness come your way, you won't just have to deal with the pain of that. You will also be dealing with the pain of why me? What did I do wrong? Why is God doing this to me? And in a sense, it actually will be triple the pain because even if you believe in God, you will feel like God is not there with you in it. So you will be left dealing with the difficulty, dealing with the pain of having to blame someone, most likely yourself, and feeling alone and abandoned in it by God. But if you settle this expectation that life is a struggle, life is hard, then the problem will still be the problem, but you won't have double and triple the pain. Instead, you'll be free not to blame. And you'll be free to see and experience how the goodness of God wants to be with you and is with you through every single thing and struggle you face. We won't feel alone. We won't feel abandoned by God or others. But there's more. The second lesson today is the focus of the struggle is is actually a choice between two kingdoms. Our choice in this struggle of life is between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There is nothing in between. It's one or the other. I don't know about you, but in our world today, uh, talking like that is considered, about the devil is considered delusional, even comedic. Because in our world, the source of evil is social and psychological, not spiritual in nature. If something goes wrong, our society immediately blames the sociological and psychological deprivations that the perpetrator of the wrong must have experienced in their life. They lacked education. They lacked the freedom to choose and do as they want. We focus on the mental illness and and blame poverty. We say that the source of evil is the oppression of the powerful or the wealthy. And if you eliminate that, there will be no more violence, no more bad deeds, no more evil. And they say, if you don't believe that those are the causes that can be scientifically measured and addressed, and you believe that something is spiritual behind it, then you're crazy. That's what the world says. But the Bible says, if you don't believe evil has a supernatural, spiritual root that is both outside of us as well as all too often inside of us, if you reduce evil to merely sociological and psychological factors, then you are the one being reductionistic, overly simplistic and naive, and you are in deep trouble. Frances Perkins uh, was the architect of the New Deal. She was the first woman to ever be appointed to a cabinet-level position as Secretary of Labor under FDR many years ago. In her memoir, she writes of a fascinating uh, change that she saw take place in FDR's thinking, and it began on February 19, 1944, when FDR was having dinner with an assistant minister from the church that he attended. And they, they were sitting at dinner talking about the Nazis and struggling with how they could be so evil to do the things they were doing in the Holocaust. And during the conversation, the minister looked at FDR and said, you should consider reading Soren Kierkegaard. He's a 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian who wrote a lot of profound stuff on evil in our world today. And FDR did. So a couple weeks later, FDR was meeting with Perkins and and asked her if she'd ever read Kierkegaard. And she said no. And he said, well, you should because it'll explain the Nazis to you. It'll teach you about the Nazis. 
FDR went on to say in that conversation, he said, Kierkegaard explained the Nazis to me like no one else ever has. I was able finally to make out why people who are obviously human beings, obviously educated, obviously refined, could behave like that. They're humans, but they behave like demons. So notice FDR's obviously is in that. He had been so caught in the secular sociological and psychological understanding of evil that he couldn't see and understand what was really going on. In fact, we know historically in the preceding years to this that there were plenty of intelligence, intelligence reports about the Jews, from Jews coming out of the Reich and others that the Holocaust was going on and, and the Allied leaders didn't believe it for a long time. Why? Because they said they were obviously educated, obviously refined. How could the Nazi leaders who studied at many of the same elite schools that we did, who listened to Mozart and appreciated fine culture, ever conceive of such a thing? Well, how they could is really simple and really scary. And without getting into what we'll be talking about over the coming weeks, let me just get at part of that today in this way. A few years back, there was a a new movie put out about Hitler called Max. You may recall, critics blasted the writer and director saying, how could you be so evil to portray a monster like Hitler as such a normal human like us? Now, I I haven't seen the film. I actually put it on my favorites list because I'm kind of curious about it. Uh, But I can't say whether I recommend it yet. But after taking a lot of heat about humanizing that uh, that monster Hitler... The director, Menno Mayas, in a New York Times interview, responded to the critics saying this. He said, yeah, I do want to depict Hitler more like us, but not to make him less monstrous. He said, the movie isn't about Hitler's great crimes. The audience knows about them already. The movie is about his small sins. His emotional cowardice, his relentless self-pity, his frustration, how he collected and nurtured offenses and his desperate need for recognition. The later Hitler, he says, obliges us by representing an uncomplicated picture of evil. We can look at him and say, look how monstrous he is. I could never do a thing like that. But then he goes on to say, but I came to realize as I read about his life that no one wakes up one day and slaughters thousands or millions. You make choices one at a time. And those choices for us are between two kingdoms. The kingdom of God is centered in how to make our choices to be more like Jesus. The one who, while perfect, willing repents on behalf of us and is baptized, giving his life for the sake of others who don't deserve it. Jesus' choices were about finding one's identity and worth and security and love and power and rightness in relationship God's way with God. And in living in God's way, giving his life in love of the creation of others, giving his life away for that. The kingdom of Satan is built on shortcuts and temptations that we succumb to. Believing that we can get to the kind of relationships we really long for, the love we long for, the identity, sense of identity and worth, the sense of power in life and the security in some other way more quickly. Our decisions are primarily guided in that instance by what we want and by our desires, not God and not loving others. 
and not giving our lives away for the love of others. See, we are going to look at the three temptations of Jesus over the course of this series, and, and we're going to recognize in them our own, our own temptations. But we're also going to see through Jesus our way out of overcoming those temptations in our life. See, you know, but we may look at that and go, well, how can we relate? You know, Jesus didn't, he's not, he's not relatable. I mean, Jesus was God, so, you know, how can he, how can we relate to that? But the, but the fact of the matter is Jesus lived as one who laid down his rights as God. and He overcame those temptations in the same way you and I do. So, Jesus drew from the same spirit, the same strength that you and I can draw from. So let's get back today. Right down the center of each decision we have to make, every decision we have to make in life runs this line. And as Maya's noted, the way Hitler became a monster was through a lot of little choices. And you and I can also make those little choices and become a monster too, just as easily as he could. In each choice, we can choose God and his kingdom ways and serve and love like Jesus, or we can choose the kingdom of Satan and seek our own self-interest. But with each little choice, we move one step closer or one step further away from being who God created us to be. Because every choice paints the story of our lives of whose kingdom you and I belong to, God or Satan. Every time we choose to respond to our insecurity and offense by nurturing offense, by looking to prove ourselves or looking for revenge or or defeating someone and proving we're better, we choose the kingdom of Satan. We choose the pain, the scars, the blindness, the bitterness of heart that makes us a little more like Satan every day. Every time we choose, like Jesus, to forgive and love and serve even our enemy and lay down our lives for others for the sake of the kingdom of God, we allow the transformation of the Spirit to change us from the inside out and make us stronger and stronger and stronger. You see, Jesus allows us to face temptation because He is leading us to overcome the struggle to win. 1 Corinthians 10 puts it this way. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We know, even in life, that growth and strength in any area of our lives is formed by resistance and tension. You don't become good at handling conflict unless you handle conflict. Physically, your body doesn't remain strong without resistance. Your muscles grow and become strong. Your bones stay healthier. Your cardiovascular system stays healthier when you lift weights, when you run, when you exercise, when you do things that stress them. The exercise often leaves you with a a level of pain. As you work the muscles, they break down and then they heal and they grow stronger, right? We know this. God doesn't tempt us, but he knows that growing through the struggle and resistance of temptation can help us become strong and whole. So James, Jesus' skeptic half-brother who, who, who becomes a believer, captures God's goal for us when we face temptations and difficulties of all kinds. He writes in James 1, he says this, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect, complete, lacking nothing. That sounds like something worth pursuing, worth enduring, no shortcuts for. But count it all joy? I mean, what kind of nut counts temptation and difficulty as joy, right? But honestly, James is just echoing Jesus. Because Jesus, throughout the Gospels, repeatedly says, rejoice when you face tribulations and difficulties of all kinds. See, when we understand that I am forgiven of all my sins and no one can condemn me, I am so valued by God that He gives me His Spirit to help me. I am, I have His favor with me. When I understand that I am absolutely secure, intimately valued, and loved by God, then a different script will control our attitude and our response to temptation and difficulty. See, James also says a few verses later, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt with, uh, be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when they are lured and enticed by their own desire. Isn't it heartbreaking, heartbreakingly sinful for us when, when we realize that we blame God for our difficulty and temptation? And then desire, he goes on to say, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And there it is again. Those little choices of choosing Satan's kingdom, those little seeds of conception, they grow, they give birth, and when they're fully grown, bring death. But God leads us. He doesn't cause temptation. He leads us into difficult situations where we will face temptation for two purposes. One, to be part of God's mission, to seek and save the lost. He'll send us into dark, difficult places on His mission. And He will also bring us into places where we will experience temptation in order to expose wrong desires and weaknesses in our character so that the weak character in us can be made strong. So as we look to temptation in our lives, let God rewrite for you how you intuitively respond. See it as an opportunity that God is bringing your way for you to be made perfect and whole and complete. Because every temptation that we experience in life comes back to one or more of these three questions that we are wrestling with in life. The question of, am I really forgiven? Or is God punishing me? Is God really going to show up and work on my behalf? Does He care that much? Or am I, am I really who God says I am and worth what God says I am? And God wants to rewrite those questions in our lives into declarations that we say, yes, yes, I am forgiven. God really is for me and His power and His favor are with me. And I am really who God says I am and worth what God says I am. See, the Bible tells us every believer in Christ is on a collision. In fact, every person on earth, because God wants everybody saved, is on a collision course for the possibility of great good. He has a plan to make your life have a great positive impact. And temptations can be a way of testing, of assessing, of preparing us, of helping us to be ready for the next step, strong enough for the next step. God doesn't bring sickness. He doesn't bring disease. He doesn't bring the conflict. But He can use it. 
And in this series, our goal is not to bring fear or shame as we talk about temptation on anyone because Jesus was tempted. And so will we be. We're in good company. Our goal, rather, is to not avoid it, but rather to learn to ask the curious questions so that we can more fully engage with what God is doing in that moment in our life, in that difficulty, to bring maturity and completeness to our lives, knowing full well that Jesus is with us and we have nothing to fear. I mean, if you've chosen to follow Jesus, you are loved. You are securely accepted. You are secure in Him. He is there with you. He is not going to leave you lacking anything to face whatever you have to face in life. He is there and He will bring you through if you will choose His kingdom with each choice. You know, Jesus got baptized and then He fulfills it in His in His crucifixion and resurrection and that's what we celebrate in communion. Jesus came and paid perfectly. The perfect Jesus paid perfectly for every single one of our sins, for every wrongdoing we could could do, so that heaven could be opened, so that we could know the power and presence of God in our lives, so that we could know we are loved and secure as sons and daughters of God, and that He is with us, He is for us, and He has a great plan for us, our lives. But we do face temptation. And if you've given in to that temptation, if you succumb to that temptation in your actions, just ask forgiveness. This is a moment to just ask forgiveness and receive His forgiveness freely. Because it's there to be liberally and freely received by you. And walk into the freedom He wants you to have where you can make these three declarations. I am forgiven. God's favor is with me. And I am who God says I am. And I am worth who God, how much God says I'm worth, which is a tremendous amount. Would you stand with me as we pray? So Holy Spirit, I ask that You would come into this moment. And I pray especially for those of us here who are struggling with some of those statements saying, I don't know how to believe that about me. I just don't, I feel like I'm to blame. I've just messed up so much and I don't, Lord, would you just come by your spirit now and as we celebrate communion, would you come and erase those feelings and would your spirit pour out your love in such a way that every single one of us here would know that open heaven, your presence, your love, that you are for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.